It's a real pleasure to be with my longtime friends and colleagues, Dr. Ben Jackson from the University of Western Australia in Perth, and Dr. James Dimmick, who is located in Townsville, Australia at James Cook University. Together, they lead the Psychology of Active and Healthy Living group, where they coordinate research on a range of health, uh, sport, and resilience-related topics. It's great to have the chance to speak with both of you guys today. Thanks, thanks for having us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Same, thanks Les. So maybe you can start, Ben, just by talking a little bit about the aim or the goal of, of the research group, um, the Paul group, as, as you referred to it. Um, what is the sort of broad aim of your work? Yeah, thanks, Les. We, we set the group up in about 2012, uh, so, so eight years or so ago now. Uh, and at that point, uh, James and I have both been in what, what would in North American terms we you know refer to as faculty positions here for, for four, five, six years at UWA. And I think the reason that we, we set that up was first because we, we enjoyed working with each other. And that's, and that's really important to, to mention is that we wanted, we wanted the chance to do as much work together as we possibly could, and we still do. Um, and and we, we felt like we'd spent um, a bit of our, our early part of our career focusing on, on the, the bench end of the bench to bedside continuum and doing observational or cross-sectional or experimental work that was informing our, our understanding of, of health processes, but wasn't giving us the opportunity necessarily to apply that and, and get it out into the community. And I think that was our real goal with, with setting up the PAL group was to make sure that there was always that goal of, of taking what we'd done with our research and, and, and getting it out into the community as best we could. And, and so now when, when James and I talk about the group, that the overall kind of vision or mission of what we do is, is to use the power of people, uh, interpersonal support and connections to promote any aspect of physical or, or mental health. Yeah. And so when you say use the power of people, uh, James, maybe you can expand or elaborate on how or in what way you use the power of people to promote healthy or active living. Well, largely um, revolves around uh, having people come together um, for the, the programming that we do, the community programming that we do. We, we um, incorporate, of course, other elements with our community programs, workshopping or some form of of physical activity task, there'll be, um, I guess, issues within the programs that, that are aside from bringing people together, but at its core, it's, it's bringing people together and, and establishing social connections. And what we found though, over the passage of time is that the formation of those social connections um, and the careful formation of those social connections is really the, the driving force behind good health outcomes. Yeah. I, I consider though that issue to be much more powerful than any workshopping that we might do to try and uh, help uh, build resilience in people. I think, you know, the, um, the, the bringing people together angle and bringing the right people together is, um, is especially important in our efforts. Right. So uh, yeah, spot on. Sorry to, sorry to jump in. If, if you yeah. don't mind me just, just adding on the back of that, JD and I uh, talked uh, in a pub in Perth last year. We did a, a lot of our talking while James was at UWA in the pub, but we actually were, were asked specifically to do a talk in a pub last year. And one of the things that we got at was um, 
the specific issue of finding the right kinds of support and, and we see ourselves as uh, playing an important role in trying to help people find that right kind of support. There are, there are loads of examples uh, from the top of my head. The, the ones that we talked about in that talk last year were things like the problems that mums have when they join mothers groups where there's the show off in the group um, and it just heightens you, you know those neuroses or paranoia or, or joining a gym uh, and there's it's full of lycra clad fit bodies and you know that make us feel insecure it's those those aren't necessarily the right kinds of people even though people are around us there yeah. uh, and there's that there's that work on the social media paradox as well you know that we're we're in 2020 more connected than ever to people but also many of us feel more alone than ever as a result of the influences that we see on social media so uh, it's a, it's really about that that issue that james mentions getting the right kinds of support around people yeah so being intentional about how you create groupings of people sounds like it's important in in the work that you do and uh, you mentioned the word uh, resilience so maybe either of you can talk a little bit more about i know you've uh, developed a program specifically for teachers and and i can say uh, in the united states at the moment there's a lot of teachers <laughs> that are struggling particularly trying to adjust to this online environment and given the current circumstances um, are struggling so what i guess my question would be what, what does resilience mean and what, what are some elements of the program that you developed for teachers in particular? Well, we developed a program that we call GRIT, uh, Growth and Resilience in Teachers, um, largely off the back of lots of evidence here in Australia showing that teachers um, suffer from high levels of attrition um, in the five or so, within the five or so years post-graduation from university, um, entering into the teaching profession, there's a really big churn in that industry. And that obviously uh, has got really detrimental outcomes for, for students and their, and their learning. But of course, you know, the, the reason for the high churn, um, it seems, is that the teachers are under a lot of stress uh, in this country and probably in many other countries as well. And uh, so what we wanted to do is, is provide teachers with an opportunity to reflect on their, on their mental health, health re reflect on their workplace, um, and bring, bring teachers together to share experiences and to, and to build coping skills together. So again, at, at our core in the GRIP program, um, our, our strategies to try and bring teachers together that might not have been brought together otherwise. And we try to consider who we bring together very carefully. Um, and we found that the program works really, really well. We've got some really nice evidence to show that the bringing of those teachers together really helps um, the teachers feel a sense of, of connection and purpose in their workplace. Um, so, and, and it improves their mental health, improves their uh, sense of productivity in, in their job as well. So, you know, um, there are some other elements that we do. We, we go into the school. We typically spend a day um, in a workshop session within the school um, talking about um, coping strategies that individuals might employ. They might consider we give them um, a suite of, of options that they, that they could employ at an individual level to help themselves cope with stressors in the workplace. 
but but neither Ben nor I are presumptuous enough to to think that that's going to change their worlds in a in a dramatic sense. I think the biggest influence is the fact that that we try to impose a structure within the school. We work with the leadership group within the school to develop structures around connecting people um, over the longer term. So yeah. that's largely what the GRIT program is about. And there's there's an emphasis, I think. In, in there as well, not just about, you know, trying to get across to people the benefits of receiving good forms of support, but also giving good support as well. And, and we, talk, we often talk to, to teachers in, in those sessions about, well, look, you know, if, if you think you're coping well, don't disengage from this program. Actually see yourself as, as a, a bit of pillar, a pillar of strength in your school and somebody who could pass on and share whatever it is about you that's helping you cope well. So we, we try to get that uh, collaboration I suppose going in both directions one thing that's maybe worth mentioning about the program because it was a it was a, a good lesson to us as researchers is is how it developed we we developed the program and, and it's a lesson that we keep in mind for in, in terms of what the community wants from us not what we want to, to do on our you know with our CVs or with our research career and so it actually came about through a conversation that James had with with a teacher from the school that we first delivered the program into and they said we're struggling we we, we want help uh, we know you guys work to promote health in lots of different ways what kinds of interventions or programs might you be able to consider for us so we put together a bit of a an offering of five or six different things we we, we said we could try and promote physical activity or we could talk to you guys about sleep not not in the workplace, but you know, um, nutrition, um, those sorts of things. And we, we pitched a few mental health ideas too. We could talk about emotional intelligence or whatever it might be. And, and the one thing that they really wanted was this idea, this piece around stress and, and resilience. So, so we went with that and, and we let the program develop from there. And I think that's something that we keep at the core of PAL is to do work for the community's benefit, not for our benefit. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, when you're doing the research that, that then um, applies to the community that you're really finding out what the stakeholders needs or wants are rather than applying your preconceived ideas. Um, yeah. You mentioned Ben, go ahead, James, go ahead. Yes. Uh, I've got a couple of points. One, one of the things that we have really um, taken to doing over the last five years as researchers is the that exact approach less, which is instead of developing a, a research idea in a lab ourselves and then going and to an external stakeholder and asking whether they might be keen on partnering with us. We go there first, we go to the stakeholder first and ask them what they need in terms of, uh, or might desire in terms of research in their workplace or in terms of supporting the, the health of their workforce. And, and, and I think that approach has worked very well for us because it automatically um, enables us to obtain strong buy-in from the stakeholder and it also gives us an opportunity to learn what's important out in the community not necessarily what's important in the lab which might not have real world uh, relevance or impact yeah and uh, getting back to a previous the ben's previous point about the involvement of um teachers who who are doing okay and might not i might listen to our workshop and think well i'm I, I know all this and i'm doing okay i'm fine in my workplace this is something that we've experienced in in all of our programs actually you you get participants who are who are doing who are traveling reasonably well and what we try to encourage them to do is 
um, encourage them away from thinking just about themselves. They're really, they really can be positive mentors and role models for others. And that brings back that issue of um, using those people in the right way as right. positive exemplars and learning from the, their coping methods. So instead of them tuning out to a workshop, maybe we can encourage them to think about how they can help others, right. helping them realize that others aren't necessarily in the same boat. That's where we feel our role um, is in, in those sorts of cases. Right, so it sounds like you're trying to learn from those who are thriving, not, not just those who are experiencing distress or who are struggling to cope, but by learning from those who are coping well or have adaptive strategies, and, and then, as you mentioned, Ben, that those individuals uh, get incorporated into the program to give support to others. Sounds like a, a valuable element of your program. Um, one of the things also you mentioned earlier, James, is that when you were speaking to the people or when they were congregating in groups, that it was an opportunity for them to gain connection and purpose. And I'm wondering if you felt like the teachers or did they express that they were lacking some purpose or meaning to what they were doing? Was that evident in conversations or? Uh, I, a lot of teachers, uh, certainly the ones that have been around for a long period of time, um, commonly say that they've, you know, they've lost that sense of drive, that sense of um, making a difference to kids. There's, uh, you know, I guess it's, it might be a symptom, a little bit of a symptom of burnout, perhaps, but disillusionment. Uh, we we hear that a lot from teachers. The the broader teaching community says that a lot, and as, um, we find it especially the case in the more experienced teachers, the ones that have been around a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I think it's quite a common perception with teachers over here, at least. Right. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that that we've seen about what the program that we run and lots of other similar programs is, you know, teachers are, are just under so much strain even before the world went crazy with covid you know teachers are just under so much pressure that just just us being there and a, and a program happening in their school that puts at the at the core of it their well-being and and their happiness at work um is something that they really appreciate and and we've seen you know lots of feedback that there's, there's a sense of appreciation for the leaders in the school for, for putting this on, so to speak, on the radar. Um, and I think that, that sets things off on yeah. the right foot with, with right. programs. So just, just the mere fact that you have an explicit program that's designed or that's kind of got their well-being or, as you mentioned, man, their happiness as its kind of front and center or explicit aim sounds like that in and of itself has value for the teachers. One of the biggest, one of those beyond gone, James. One of the biggest benefits I think of the program is when we go back to the school six or so months after we, we deliver the workshop is that the teachers often say to us that the, the, the workshop um, gave them the strength and conviction to go and talk more regularly with the leadership group because they knew the leadership group recognized the you know mental health and resilience as an issue. Therefore, because they brought the program into the school in the first place and so that recognition uh, that the leaders were open and, and um, empathetic to this issue enabled them to then talk more freely with the leaders throughout that period I think that's one of the best the best outcomes of our program right so would you I say think, oh go ahead Ben sir I think what's really important to 
to mention is that issue yeah of, of it just starting conversations when we, when we go in with this program and with anything that we we do really we we always try to make really explicit that we don't expect a miracle fix you know or or, or a change overnight uh, but we you know over over the long period by by you know changing the language hopefully in, in these schools and by changing a few of the, the support structures that might be there then hopefully over the course of six months or a year or so you can start to see positive change so i think being realistic with with it is something that they appreciate as well they they don't think that we're just going to come in and try and click our fingers and, and change things overnight right um was one of the concerns i guess or stressors that teachers experienced the fact that they didn't necessarily feel that they were being heard or understood by their leadership uh, I, I absolutely that's that's the case um, in a lot of schools a lot of teachers say that you know um, a lot of teachers say that they just got, get swallowed by the workload and you know they don't have uh, they don't have a great relationship with the leadership group because they don't feel necessarily they have the time to go and see the leadership group um, they don't feel oftentimes that their voices when they do raise them are heard very much and and so, and so the school opening up for a full day workshop is real recognition, I think, that the school, see, the leadership of the school sees mental health and resilience coping as, as real issues that their staff are facing. And I think that really does um, improve the communication between staff members and the leadership group around those issues. We, um, we ask for, for feedback about all the elements of, of that program and all the programs that we do. We're big enough and ugly enough to be told if we're not doing a good job because we want to know and, and change that. But it's interesting that one of the things that we often see written down explicitly is that workshop days and, and conversations around these sorts of things are a chance for teachers to, to come up for air. Um, and it's interesting what that implies about how they're feeling for 98% of the time is that you know, they're kind of swamped. Yeah. Ben, maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the actual features of, of the or elements of the teacher resilience program. Yeah, sure. Initially, we put the, the program together using a kind of persuasion or, or resistance to persuasion framework called inoculation theory, which is a, a long established psychological framework for helping people be resistant in the face of challenge or threat um, was originally developed off the back of the, the medical analogy that when people are um, getting vaccinated, they get a, a small dose of, of an offending virus uh, inserted into the body and then the, the cells in the body, the body adapts and becomes resistant to stronger future attacks from that virus. And so inoculation theory in a psychological way works very similarly. We provide people with the kinds of things that may challenge or stress them and work on strategies to, to deal with those. Now, the way that a lot of inoculation work has been done in the past is, is lab-based with, with text, with messages that people sit and read. You know, here's something that might challenge an attitude and here's why it shouldn't. And what we wanted to do um, for our own sake and, and you know, in terms of advancing the, the inoculation theory literature was to try and make that more interactive, make that more practical. Uh, and so we took those principles and applied them into the, the workshop that we put together. And then around that, we wrapped our key issue of, of you know, good social support. Yeah. 
So, I mean, imagine, of course, these teachers, you mentioned they're, they're experiencing a lot of stressors. And so I guess you don't have to come up with too many hypotheticals to, to pose to them, but they're probably, you know, in communicating their stressors to you, do you then use those stressors as kind of a starting point uh, for inoculating yeah, you know, them? Yeah, I'll pass over to JD because I'm sure you'll have some cool stuff to say about, about how we start the, the workshop. But yeah, that's that's exactly what happens, Les. But we try, we, we're not we're not teachers, you know, as, as much as we teach here at the universities that we're in. We're, we're not high school teachers. So we have to recognize that we're not in their shoes as much as we try to empathize. Um, so we let them, you know, lead the discussion around the stresses and the, the best, the most productive responses to those stresses. And we try to get conversation going in the school that way. But what we start the workshop with, which is again based largely out of, of inoculation theory principles, is, is some self-affirmation uh, stuff, which, which we're doing some, some lab-based work on at the moment to better understand. So perhaps JD would want to talk a little bit to that. Yeah, so um, we think, uh, based on previous evidence, that it's, it's really important for teachers um, um, and other community members when they're in a position where they, they're quite stressed and they're, they're finding things difficult to cope with is to develop strategies to, to um, recognize the positive things that they do have. And in most cases, even when people are under high amounts of stress, there's usually one, two, a few things that aren't going reasonably well. Um, it's very rarely the case that in a, in a, if you look at the whole gamut of a person's life that there's nothing going, nothing at all going and so, you know, for, for mental health benefits, I, we think it's a very important um, um, training um, maneuver to get people to reflect on what's positive in, in their life at that moment in time. And in relation to this particular program, we encourage them to think about what, why they entered teaching, the teaching profession in the first place, and what they continue to see as a positive aspect of their teaching profession. Mm -hmm. Um, very rarely will teachers draw a blank with this side of the program, which is really reassuring. I mean, there's lots of, the reality is there's lots of value in, in teachers and most teachers do recognize their value um, when you ask them enough about it. Um, but sometimes they lose, lose focus on those positive aspects because they're consumed by the negativity that the stress of that particular profession um, um, gives them but yeah so we start out the program really talking to them asking them about what they see as positive uh, why they entered the profession why they uh, found a sense of meaning in the profession if not now then in, in, a, um, in a previous time and then we and then we move gradually into a discussion of things that trigger them and trigger the stress typically trigger their stress in the workplace uh, the identification of stressors in the workplace and and a reflection of the things that they try to use to cope um, and and they they engage in discussions with each other around different coping strategies and we talk about coping strategies whether they're useful coping strategies or not and so there's a lot of discussion and sharing of ideas around what may or may not be effective coping strategies and again this is where those people that may be inclined to be thinking well i don't need this workshop i'm not, i'm doing okay I'm, I'm fine this is where their value really comes out it's in sharing with perhaps the more junior teachers 
the methods that they've used to cope over the passage of time uh, under certain circumstances. So we, we really, really draw from those guys in that moment. One, and then one think... things... Sorry, JD. One of the things that's probably worth mentioning there, Les, is some, something that seems to resonate in, in to, with teachers in terms of the feedback that we get is, is drawing this distinction, which is from other people's work, not ours, uh, of, of productive versus unproductive worry. Um, whether whether you're in control of, of the stress and, and the worry or whether that stress and worry is in control of you. Yeah. Um, and we, we draw the distinction there between getting people to focus on well, what's a productive response look like for you or for those in your school? How can we learn from others? And what, what's, a, what's an unproductive response like where that rumination and, and concern just seems to continue and continue and doesn't go anywhere? Um, and we've seen that that often is something that seems to help people in terms of their approach to this sort of thing, you know, asking themselves, okay, am I, am I being as productive as I, as I could or should in this, in this situation? Yeah. I'm just thinking of like one of my former doctoral students was looking at this idea of growth after adversity. And he focused in particular on people who had traumatic injuries and, and was looking at some distinctions again, made by others uh, that you allude to Ben uh, one, ideas of intrusive rumination where you sort of have these uncontrolled or unbidden kind of repetitive thoughts of the trauma and the other was uh, termed deliberate rumination where you're sort of deliberately uh, intentionally trying to make sense or make meaning out of the experience and you know in a number of studies we found that that latter the deliberate rumination seemed to be important in helping people uh, eventually move past some of the the trauma in a more productive way, shape, or form. Whereas the intrusive rumination, if that continued to persist, that eventually that, that became more debilitating or unhelpful. Sounds similar to kind of to what you're describing. Um, sure, yeah. So um, in terms of, I guess on that note, the coping strategies that some of the teachers articulate that are helpful or maybe less effective, what, what are some examples of some of the things that you hear or, or get when, when you have those discussions? Almost without fail, when we talk about the, the productive or unproductive, uh, alcohol comes in, <laughs> Not numbing the pain. Uh, some consider it productive, some consider it unproductive. Um, in terms of, in ter it, it, it's, it's what you'd expect in terms of the productive responses, communicating, sharing, seeking resources, looking for solutions, focusing on, on trying to deal with the problem, not just the emotions around it. It's those sorts of things that once we get um, teachers talking to each other, they, they tend to identify, I think. Right. The, the teachers that I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with that have coped over the passage of time pretty well are the ones that are, are pretty expressive as well. They're not afraid to talk to others, including the leadership group. Um, I, I, you know, there still is in many circles some stigma um, around talking around mental health, um, to, especially to leadership group. And it is probably a degree of worry among some teachers uh, of declaring that they're struggling to a leadership group. But the ones that we find typically cope well over the passage of time are less worried about that and they don't see it as a problem um, ad addressing their uh, concerns with leadership groups. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's different ways of doing that. And we, you know, there's different ways of talking to leadership groups about issues like that. But um, certainly communication and communication with leadership groups and a willingness to open up and express 
how people are feeling is, is, is key. Yeah. So w- once they've had the opportunity in groups to express these maybe adaptive or more maladaptive coping strategies, is there some then um, effort to uh, help them implement those strategies or to kind of work through some of the stressors and, and to help them yes. employ those coping strategies? Yeah, so the final part of the workshop is, is what we call a resilience roadmap, which is where they, they um, determine how they're going to implement the, the, the strategies, the various strategies that have been introduced to them, uh, including the connection with others. So we, we, we try to establish different uh, mentorship um, aspects to the program. Um, and, and we provide lots of different options for... Um, for individual level coping as well. They might, some of those might resonate more than others, but the, the resilience roadmap is an opportunity for them to think about which ones might be most useful for them. We also do remind uh, teachers not to be so hard on themselves. You know, and I think that's also a pervasive problem in society beyond teachers as well. Is, you know, there, there's this growing body of literature now around self-compassion, just being, just being kind to us, kinder to ourselves. And treating ourselves as if we would treat a friend, you know, and uh, there's no way we'd talk to a friend in a school environment, a, t- a fellow teacher, in the way that we sometimes engage in self-dialogue, in crit- critical self-dialogue. And I think there's a, there's this really um, among among professionals, there's a there's a tendency to have high expectations of oneself, overly high expectations of oneself, and and too harsh a judgment on oneself. So we also talk a little bit around that literature of being self-compassionate, how we might be able to be more self-compassionate. Yeah, there are there are a few of those things, Les. That you know, they they take they take time. I think the, lots of teachers, when they hear about them, they they love the idea of yeah, I, I I can see that I probably could and should be a bit kinder to myself. Putting it into practice is is trickier because it's changing. You know, in some cases, lifelong habits. Um, so, so it's about, it's about setting up a structure that where they, I think there's a focus on, on what you can do individually to try and change the way you think about these sorts of things, but, but also what the school can do structurally to, to help those conversations continue to help those processes happen. And, and sometimes it's, it's about the way that the, the teachers will communicate with each other, that the structure of uh, group meetings and, and pods and, and those sorts of things that can help. Sometimes it's really, really simple stuff as well, though. Like uh, one of the schools we went to said that we want a suggestion box. We want a comments or a feedback, feedback box put outside reception so that if we're having a hard time, we can just dump something in there and we know it's going to be read. And, and attention is going to be paid to it, and hopefully action is going to be taken within this framework that that the program provides. Yeah, I think that's a great point about you know that distinction between the stressors and, and kind of on what level are they occurring? Are they more structural in nature or more individual? And I guess there's often the tendency to assume that you know when we think of stress and coping, we always focus on the individual, right? Like how do we give the individual better strategies, assuming that somehow they're the ones that are in some ways flawed or, you know, and if they just have better strategies or more robust, they'll be better able to cope or more resilient when in fact, maybe it's, it's the structure. Um, you know, I, you know, was having that sort of discussion with, with my wife in, in terms of the, the schooling today when my 
my son was having some challenges with the online learning environment. And, and, me, and we sort of talked about this idea that, well, maybe it's not something specifically about how he's coping or failing to cope. And it's really the fact that they're maybe trying to squeeze sort of this brick and mortar learning environment into an online environment. And it just doesn't work. So maybe the issue is not the individual so much as the structure. So I think that's a great point. Um, yeah, we, we, we hear that time and time again from teachers. You know, they say, well, it's great what you're teaching us in terms of our ability to cope and the individual strategies, but the real problem lies at the, at the sort of the leadership level or even above at the sort of the, you know, the broader school curriculum level in terms of workload. And yeah. uh, all we can do is, is, is inform the leadership groups and, and the broader structure um, about about those issues and what teachers are experiencing. We tell teachers that we will have conversations. Um, Well, and it sounds again, like if you're able through part of this program in particular to help improve lines of communication upwardly or sort of from the top coming down that that can address, you know, or maybe help meet some of the structural and individual level stressors that overlap with each other. I also thought it was interesting, you know, you mentioned self-compassion and I guess teachers or others in achievement settings are notoriously hard on themselves. Um, Maybe you can also speak to some misconceptions about the idea of self-compassion. I mean, I know that sometimes like if people think, well, I'm, you know, I shouldn't be too kind to myself because that's akin to going easy on myself or, or being complacent. And and I guess, you know, maybe you can clarify sort of what self-compassion is or how it might not be those things. It, yeah, purely anecdotally, but that, that seems to be the biggest uh, barrier that people have to, to trying to become more self-compassionate is that it, it's something for the hippies. You know, it, it, it suggests all of a sudden that we're going to be uh, devoid of any ambition or you know, put ourselves in any kind of challenging situation because we're just going to be, we're just going to take it really easy on ourselves. And I think people are inherently wary of, of that kind of thing. But the way that we talk about it is the way that James talked about it there. You know, just trying to treat yourself a little more often how you would treat a really good friend. Uh, and I think, I hope that that helps break down that barrier a little bit. And it seems to, seems to make a lot of sense to people when you talk about it that way. Yeah. And, and I should say that's not we it's not us who's come up with that approach. You know, that's that's a, a way that self-compassion is described in the literature, but we just we have found that that's an, a nice way of introducing and, and talking about the issue. Yeah. And and I mean my my understanding of the literature research is, you know, on some level it, it also makes sense that if you think about just continually being hard on yourself or saying negative things to yourself, that not surprisingly that that may have some detrimental downstream effects or outcomes on people's health or well-being and um so you know it sounds like there's also i guess you know when you clarify what the concept actually means i don't know if that overcomes some uh, barriers or um, helps people become more receptive to the idea or concept yeah to Um, me to me, you know, being self-compassionate isn't about walking, walking through life, just being happy, screwing things up. Um, it's, you know, if, if and when we do screw things up, it's, it's recognizing that that's happened. But 
you know, trying to learn something from it at the same time, trying to recognize that we all screw up and also trying to move past it and, and be, be, maintain some positivity, I guess, through it. There was a meta-analysis done in 2012 on the effects of self-compassion on psychopathology, and there's pretty uh, reasonably strong effect sizes, negative effect sizes. So the more self-compassionate people are, the, the less anxiety, stress, and depression that they, they suffer from. So there's lots of evidence out there to show that it's a very important quality to, to have is to not be so critical on oneself. And as Ben said, that, that doesn't equate to not caring or, not, or, or being apathetic. It just re relates to the more common issue of, of when one is overly critical of oneself, um, just being a bit kinder to, to one's reaction. Yeah. And, and teachers are teachers are a smart bunch. And, and in terms of building the rationale for why we include a discussion of self-compassion in, in the program, we, we include that meta-analysis and, and we talk to them, show them those results. And it, and it seems to connect with, with those guys. They like to see the evidence that, that what we're talking about isn't just our, our approach and our theory. Right, right. But there's certainly yeah, an empirical base to support what you're doing and what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I know you guys have a lot of other different programs i'm also conscious of of your time but uh i love chatting with with both of you because i feel like not only do i feel i know you have such expertise in the areas that you've been prolific in in studying and researching and uh you know as you've talked about bringing into community settings so um yeah i just want to say thanks for your time and and i appreciate our conversation and and chat. So thank, thanks for taking the time to speak. Thanks for the opportunity, Les. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, Les. Always happy to chat, mate.